Greetings, Dysfunctionals. We are back with another episode of The Reality Dysfunction. I am Ernesto Morales. And I'm Alex Yanish. And today we're speaking with Curly Tlapoyawa, a longtime participant of Mexicayote, founder of the Mexica Eco Society, and author of five books, three of which I use regularly in my classroom, We Will Rise, Slippery Earth, and Totacho, Our Way of Speaking. Curly lives in Albuquerque with his family. He's a professional stuntman with an impressive list of movie and television appearances. I heard he uh, stood in for Luis Guzman, directed his own horror movie, and recently graduated the University of New Mexico with a degree in anthropology. Curly maintains Mexica.org, which challenges ahistorical narratives about indigenous people and puts forward well-researched counter-narratives for the scientific discipline of their societies. When we started making plans for this podcast, Curly was one of the first people we put down as a guest. After attending the Knox conference this past April in Albuquerque, we were able to sit down and talk a bit, talk for a bit. We had a great time and we're really pumped when he contacted us to do the podcast. So without further ado, let's get to it. Curly, what is Mexicayote and why is it important? Wow. So there's two different types of Mexicayote, right? There was the historical pre-Cuauhtémoc, and I like to use pre-Cuauhtémoc instead of pre-Columbian, instead of measuring our, our people's time in its relation to contact with white men. I think it makes more sense to measure our time by our own leaders. So Cuauhtémoc was the last Tlahuani of Mexico Tenochtitlan. So anything that happened before his birth, basically, is what we're talking about when we say pre-Cuauhtémoc. Anyway, uh, so Mexicayot, literally means that which is Mexica, or the essence of being Mexica. The suffix yot basically means esencia, right? Or essence, or of pertaining to something. So in pre-Cuauhtémoc times, Mexicayot was very specific to the Mexica empire, for lack of a better term, the Triple Alliance. They, Mexicayot was basically framed as representing their glory, the glory of this, of this empire that they had established. In modern times, uh, there's Mexicayot that started roughly uh, sometime, a few years after the Mexican Revolution were, were, were the first inklings of, of modern Mexicayot. And that came from just this nationalist surge that occurred in Mexico after the Mexican Revolution to uh, identify Mexican history with Aztec history and to basically glorify the Aztec imperial past as, as being the identity of all Mexicans. The people who started this Mexicayot movement were, they were an interesting group of people. Uh, a lot of them were... Um, very well off. They were middle-class Mexicans, uh, super nationalist, uh, bordering on racism. Like they, they put out a lot of, you know, very anti-Semitic uh, literature out. Uh, and they, they were really wrapped up in presenting narrative of Mexican history that was, you know, vehemently indigenous. And that's what all Mexican identity should be based upon, which, you know, I agree with, you know, Mexico's an indigenous nation. Unfortunately, what the founders of Mexicayot did was they drew a lot from pseudo-history and pseudo-historical narratives and pseudo-archaeology and basically framed world history through the lens of indigenous Mexican history, saying things like the Aztecs traveled across the Atlantic Ocean and taught, you know, Europeans or taught the Greeks, you know, uh, philosophy and, and just making these really outlandish claims. So the pseudo history, the pseudo archaeology got mixed with actual history and archaeology and then later on got mixed with very new agey uh, ideas. And that kind of formulated what is the modern version of Mexicayo that exists. Now, some friends and I, a few years back, about six years ago, we put forth the idea of Yankwik Mexicayo, which means the new Mexicayo, which would be like a reformation, if you will, of just basically, you know, holding on to the idea that we are indigenous people, that Mexico is an indigenous nation, but stripping it of its pseudo-historical 
backgrounds, it's new age backgrounds, and just the idea that, you know, all of Mexican history should center around Mexica history. Yankwik Mexicayot is like an ideology, you know, like it's an approach. It's a, it's a way of, of looking at things and analyzing people through a, through a scientifically informed indigenous lens. If that makes any sense, <laughs> uh, it totally it totally makes sense. Just real quick, so this is where I mean a, a lot of what you're talking about. I've done some reading about, but I, I haven't really studied in depth, particularly that period right after the Mexican Revolution. But so this is where like the writings by Jose Vasconcelos, the Raza Cosmica, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, is is that an outgrowth of this? You know, this Mexicayo movement. Sort of, yeah. I mean, it came out of that same period of time and, and was informed by, you know, writers like Vasconcelos. But then it went off, it went off and became its own thing, which was um, very indigenous-centered. Mm. Whereas Vasconcelos, you know, wrote about La Raza Cosmica and how it was a blending of these mm. two people that created a super race. And he was very, he, you know, he was obsessed with eugenics and he, you know, was a Nazi sympathizer. Yeah. You know, he, uh, he had a very straightforward, you know, we brought civilization, you know, the, the Indians of Mexico were, were civilized through the act of mestizaje, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it bettered the country. So what Vasconcelos was doing was he created this whole worldview wherein in Mexico in the 1930s, the motto was, you know, Mexicanize Indians do not Indianize Mexico. And that was, you know, the birth of th- this idea it came from Jose Vasconcelos and the La Raza Cosmica, Mestizaje, and then later the whole idea of the Latino, you know, that contributes to this, you know, wiping out of indigenous identity, you know, saying that, you know, indigenous people, you know, the door of civilization was open to them by, you know, the Spaniards. Whereas Mexicayo kind of went the other direction and they were like, to hell with the Spanish. We, we don't recognize that. We are native people. But with its own set of problems. Yeah. They had their own problems that they were dealing with. I think that that part's always been really fascinating to me, particularly the whole notion of mestizaje. Because as I learned more about Vasconcelos and and even about his Nazi um, sympathizing, right? The whole obsession with eugenics and like creating new races and, and all this other kind of uh, stuff that people were talking about that moment in history, really, because it's not just in Germany that it's happening. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's really kind of having its moment all over the world. Well, yeah, I mean, the Germans were inspired by U- United States, yes. you know, the U.S. policies towards eugenics. They used to have people that would go door to door with like a census and they would um, ask you how many people lived in your house and then, you know, rated the intelligence of the people that were there. They would rate their intelligence, their appearance. You know, they had words like idiot and imbecile and, you know, they were just rating the people in the house. And then they had like a ranking system and some cities even gave out prizes to like the most genetically great people and this was a policy in the united states for a while um, uh, i'm glad they never came to my house right <laughs> <laughs> all right so really when we start talking about um things like mestizo or latino that i mean what that's really doing is heralding back to these sort of like eugenic movements that oh yeah absolutely happening. I think I think an interesting part of what you were just talking about too. I think right off the bat, you were saying that Latino is another way of covering up indigeneity. You know, an opportunity to maybe talk about that a little bit for maybe some of our listeners that think Latino is you know the right way to refer to uh, people yeah, from Central yeah, and South absolutely. America. I mean, you know, the concept of Latin America and the Latino was invented in the eighteen sixties by a French writer named Michel Chevalier, what he was doing was he was trying to come up with this umbrella term, this blanket term uh, for Mexicans that would allow the French, because Napoleon III really wanted to invade Mexico, 
if they could come up with this blanket Latino identity and say, you know, well, you are our Latin brethren as opposed to the Saxons who are up in North America and, and the British that are making moves there, we're, you know, we're going to form an alliance as Latin people. So from its very beginning, the idea of Latin America and Latin people, Latino, Latina, whatever, um, is inherently anti-Indigenous and anti-Black too, because it erases, you know, its purpose was to erase Indigenous identity. You know, you're no longer Mexican people with this Indigenous past. You're our Latin brethren. And this is why we should unite. You should allow us to invade and, you know, form this Latin empire to confront, you know, the Saxons of, of the North. And it's, Napoleon III was really receptive to this idea, and they just started pushing it out, putting out this idea that, you know, Latin people, the Latino people, that Mexicans were Latins. And so if you look at that word, it by design destroys indigenous identity. And so when you get a, a concept like Latin X, you know, you can't just slap an X onto the end of a word that is inherently racist and destructive and pretend, you know, and pretend like it's a, a, a totally new, new word. It doesn't, they're all about decoloniality, but they're using the most colonial word possible to describe themselves. And then they use this identity as a bludgeon against people who identify as indigenous. Right. This is something that has been really coming out in the past, you know, four or five years is this whole Latinx war on Chicano identity. It's troubling. I was uh, really surprised in the last couple of years about the resurgence of, of Latino, or just as a word, or as a way of people identifying. I mean, mostly because it really seemed to me like this conversation had been settled in the, in the 80s and the 90s. And I think that it's, um, I don't know, I, I, was really, I was really baffled by it. I'm still a little baffled by it, to be real honest with you. I appreciate your your comment about how this word uh, by design destroys indigenous identity. Yeah, it really does. I mean, that's why it was created. The whole purpose of that word was to to get rid of native identity. In in the same way that mestizo was also, you know, an idea to to get rid of indigenous identity. So I guess that what what that sort of brings me to at least in thinking about some of the, the things that I've looked at that you've read and the website that you maintain, Mashika.org. I mean, why do you think it's so important to maintain an indigenous identity? What does that do for us as, um, as a people? Well, <clears throat> so when you look at, you know, the history of the Chicano movement, the early Chicano movement was really influenced by guys like Vasconcelos. And mm-hmm. because we didn't really have, the, the proper frame of reference, right? We didn't know where to start looking for our identity because it was this, you know, emergent Chicano identity that was just coming out and it was inspired by the Black Civil Rights Movement and, you know, the American Indian Movement. And, you know, it was politically charged and, and things were happening. So we had a people who were struggling for a sense of who they were just grabbing whatever they could. Okay, well, mestizo, oh, all right. So that's, that's going to be our frame of reference, you know? Even with Aztlan, you know, Aztlan, okay, we'll, we'll grab that and we'll incorporate that into our identity. What I think is important about identifying as indigenous is, one, it ties us to the land, right? Two, no part of my lived day-to-day existence has ever been that of a white man. I don't know any other existence than being... Chicano and being native as a result of that. Right, right. If you look at our our food, just the food that we grew up eating is overwhelmingly indigenous. Mm. Uh, A lot of the words that we use, you know, what we call aztequismos, you know, tocayo, tequio. There's all these words that that we use on a day-to-day basis that comes, that are indigenous words. Just cultural traits, like here in New Mexico, we have traditions like, you know, the Asequia waterway systems and uh, Saltillo style weaving and Matachines dances, which are all Mesoamerican traditions that came up 
with the with the colonization of New Mexico, everything about us is indigenous, except for that last part, the the part where we say, well, "I am indigenous." Right. You know, you know, it's like kind of opening your eyes and realizing that wait, you know, I. I didn't grow up eating paella. I don't know the first fucking thing about Spain. You know, you know I just don't. You know, my existence has been that of, of being Mexican and also an American, right? Right. Uh, that was a big part of it. I'm, I'm like, you know, we're Americanized Mexican kids. So I think once we realize that we're indigenous people, that we're native people, it empowers us. It gives us a sense of knowing, you know, a place we could look to the civilizations that our ancestors created and say, well, this is part of me, you know, we, we did great things. And especially now that you have uh, an administration that is just so, you know, overwhelmingly anti-Mexican. Right. It's important that we retain that sense of who we are, that we take it back. You know, the, 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 the idea of being native was literally beaten out of the Mexican people. You know, we were made to be ashamed of being Native, not to speak Indigenous languages, not to dress in traditional uh, Native clothes, and not to identify as Native. You had a period of time where, following the Mexican Revolution, Indigenous people were actively rejecting Native identity and embracing being a mestizo because it would give them a better life, right? It would give their kids a better chance in school or in just society in general. And I can't fault them. For doing that, you know, they made decisions that they thought were best for their lives in the current circumstances. But now the circumstances are different and we should be able to take that back and be allowed the ability to take back who we are as Native people. Yeah. I know that we don't like know each other really well. I've been following your work for a long time and I got to say, I was a little surprised, just a little surprised that you... um got a degree in archaeology. Why archaeology? This is interesting. When I first got involved with Mexicayo, you know, I was, it was probably 1993, I think. I, I joined an Aztec dance group. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, that was like the epitome of being like the down-ass Chicano, right? You know, be a danzante, go out there and be a badass Aztec warrior. And um, so then I saved up some money and I moved to Mexico because I wanted to learn more. You know, I wanted to learn more about my history, where my family came from. And so I was really young, 22, I think. I moved to Mexico, Mexico City. I went to school in Cuernavaca for a while to learn how to speak Spanish. And, you know, every weekend I was in the Zócalo and in the Efe doing danza. And I would visit all the archaeological sites. And I would spend hours at the libraries and just doing research, you know and learning from these uh, elders of Mexicayo. Now, unfortunately, these elders of Mexicayo, a lot of them were just full of shit. They were drawing from the teachings of the founders of Mexicayo, mm. who, like I, I said, were very pseudo-historical, pseudo-archaeological, mixed with New Age, mixed with you know, this and that, and ultra-nationalism. And so I was learning things from them that I was just taking at face value because I didn't know any better. You know, these guys were respected people and I was just eating it up. At the same time, I was reading stuff by Vine Deloria and he had a book called Red Earth, White Lies, which uh, was really inspired by this writer named Velikovsky, who was like this crazy guy. And he wrote this book called Worlds in Collision. Mm-hmm. And so I was getting, but I'm like, well, Vine Deloria, that's a legit dude. People respect him. So he's saying these things these about science and archaeology, then they must be true, right? You know, the scientists are the bad guys. The archaeologists are the bad guys. And they're keeping the real history hidden from us. So I was just getting pumped full of all this, these ideas. And then I come back to the United States. I write We Will Rise when I was really young. I, I still, you know, for every cringe-worthy moment, I look at that book and, like, for every moment where I'm like, you know, there, there's a moment where I'm like, yeah, all right, cool. I, I, was, I, was, I was on the right track back then on, on, on these aspects. I think self-reflection is important that we have to be able to look back and be like, okay, well, I was obviously wrong here, but I was right here. So, yeah. you know, I'll get rid of that part and I'll keep going on, on to this path. So in 2007, my mom passed away. 
And I really just kind of withdrew from everything. I just wanted to take care of my family and, and not really deal with any of the political stuff, the Mishikayot stuff, just kind of step away from it all. And what was interesting is, is from the outside, I was able to see a lot of things that raised questions for me. And a good friend of mine, Ruben Ariano from Dallas, Texas, he's a professor right now, a professor of history. You know, we were both starting to like really question these Mexicano teachings at the time. We would go to a ceremony and people would tell us the crazy things about how we came from the stars or we came from Atlantis. And we would just kind of look at each other like, are you hearing this? What's going on, man? So I just, one, one of the things I love to do is I love to debunk things. I love to debunk pseudoscience, which is funny considering I got totally taken in by this pseudo history at this point. So I just really started researching the origins of all these ideas that we were taking at face value, you know, as traditional Mishikayo teachings. And we were like, man, a lot of this is just horseshit. You know, these guys are just making stuff up. I could sympathize with the desire to elevate your culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially when it's been attacked so much. Yeah. But we don't need to use bullshit to do it. You know, mm -hmm. our ancestors accomplished enough without having to make up things and embellish the history just to make them seem better than they were. Right. And so, you know, Ruben and I started really looking into this stuff. And we started questioning things like Facebook. We'd get on Facebook and we'd, well, what do you guys think about this? And people would just attack us. You know, why are you questioning this great elder? You know, who are you to question this elder? But for every one of those, 10 of those responses, I would get a, a message saying, hey, man, thanks for asking. I've been, asked, I've been wondering the same thing because that sounds like bullshit to me, you know? Well, where are all these ideas coming from? And I started getting more and more of those kind of responses, and so it really inspired me to uh, shift the focus of my work, right? So now it was like, yes, I'm going to defend my community, my culture, promote indigenous identity, but I'm going to strip away all of this uh, the nonsense, right? The stuff that doesn't work. We're getting rid of all of that and we're making it scientifically sound, historically accurate. And that's really where the idea of Yankwik Mexicayo came from, the new Mexicayo. We were like, we're going to start a, a new way of thinking of, of approaching these things. Part of that for me was going back to school, getting a degree and, you know, becoming a specialist in these things so that I can come from a place, better equip myself mm. to uh, challenge these ideas. And, you know, one of the main problems people have is, well, the archaeologists, you're getting your information from white people. Right. I'm like, all right, well, get your information from me then because I'm not white, <laughs> I'm an archaeologist. And that kind of inspired my whole thing at, at the SAAs this year with my Archie of Color hashtag where I went around and I took photos with archaeologists of color Right. Because as an archaeologist of color, you do get shit on by your own community, one, for practicing the white man science. Mm -hmm. And then two, you know, you're in this profession where usually you're the only one in the room that's a person of color. Right. You're, you know, there's a handful of us. So becoming an archaeologist for me was a way to legitimize, quote unquote, my research so that people maybe take me a little bit more serious and to have access to the research and to be able to go out myself and conduct the research and, and hold these things in my hands and, and really understand the nitty gritty of history of, of the archeological record so that when I challenge these ideas, I'm not just coming from a place of, well, just take my word for it. You know, well, here's all of this research to back it up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I know this because I helped conduct some of this research. So for me, that was a big part of becoming an archaeologist. That and Indiana Jones. <laughs> you get to punch a lot of Nazis on trains. Uh... You get to punch a lot of fucking Nazis when you're well, in Indiana. I'm, I'm old school punk rock, man. So I've punched <laughs> a few Nazis. 
Oh, yeah, that's good, man. One of the things I really appreciate about the the work that the body of work that you put forward so far is um, your uh, insistence, but also its insistence with proof on the uh, scientific nature of indigenous societies that were here in America, right? Yeah, I think that's really helped me in the classroom in talking through these things with students, right? Because it's it's like you were saying a second ago, it's like, oh, we're from the stars, we're from Atlantis, you know, it's like flutes and, you know, drums and all that kind yeah. of shit. And everybody's like, isn't it so spiritual? And it's like, well, actually, no, it's not really that spiritual. What it is is some pretty hardcore scientific observation, right? Like a few years ago when I was when I was still at Michigan State, I started taking Anishinaabe Moem courses there to learn the Anishinaabe language, as my wife is uh, Ojibwe. One of the things that I learned from the teacher in that course really quick was that Anishinaabe Moem, and I've learned since then that most indigenous languages in the Americas are, or all of them are, verb-based languages, right? They're see and say languages. So like, you don't say what something is, you say what it does. And the more that I thought about that, the more I realized that that's actually a really scientific way to look at the world, right? You see something, you make a guess about what it does or what its function is, and then you talk about the function of it. I mean, it just, yeah, it really, it really changed things for me, thinking about them in that way. And so well, that's you, what, don't, you don't get corn without being a scientist. Right? You know? you don't. Corn doesn't exist without, without people conducting experiments and uh, seeing what worked and didn't work and then cultivating what did work and proving their, their hypotheses. You know, yeah. you don't have calendar systems without astronomy right. and science. You know, you don't get... Uh, Zero. What's that? Zero, right? Yeah, yeah. You don't get the, con the mathematical concept of zero. You don't get temples without, you know, engineering. So when people criticize science, when Chicanos criticize science, it pisses me off because I'm like, you know, as being a white man's thing, it pisses me off because I'm like, did you just surrender all science to white people? <laughs> did you, you know, do you know nothing about our history? Yeah. You know, there, there is no, it's not white man science or brown, it's science. Science is an approach. It's That's a method. Right. And if you use it right, great things can happen because it's a forward moving method, right? Yeah. When you learn, when new information becomes available, you change your, your perspective based on that new information. Yeah. And that's the difference between pseudoscience and science and pseudo-archaeology and archaeology. Archaeology from the early 1800s kind of wasn't up to snuff to, uh, well, the 1880s, but really wasn't up to, up to the standard that it is today. Right. So when people made claims using the information available to them in the 1800s, you know, informed by racism, by the way, those claims are, are what they had at the time. As they get disproven or disqualified, your views change, your approach changes. And that is archaeology. Pseudo-archaeology is when you hold on to those old, outdated views in spite of all evidence to the contrary. Right. Some guy, you know, in the 1800s wrote that Olmec heads looked like Africans to him. Right. And based entirely on, on that alone, this whole industry has emerged of pseudo history and pseudo archeology span promoting the idea that the Olmecs were Africans. We now, we know that that's not true thanks to research and all the data that's available. But the people, so, you know, that's real archeology, span the people holding on to those ideas from the 1800s, that's pseudo archeology. Span I think that it's important to defend archeology span and, and make archeology span important to people because people need to understand, well, why is this important? Right. Well, what good, what good does this do me right now? You know, what, why shouldn't I pick up this ceramic shirt that I found in the woods and just pop it in my pocket and walk home with it, you know? 
and people don't understand these things because there's this lack of public outreach and uh, by actual archaeologists. So the pseudo-archaeologists are filling that void. And people love to hear bullshit. They, they love it. You know, fantastic stories of coming from Atlantis, you know, ancient aliens. Right now, that, that guy Graham Hancock just put out a book called America Before. And it's just 100% pseudo-history, pseudo-archaeology. He takes, he's good at, at uh, I was watching Game of, I don't know if you guys watch Game of Thrones, but Tyrion tells Jamie about their sister. You know, she's always been really good at using the truth to tell lies. Mm-hmm. And that's what Graham Hancock does in his books. He takes a little bit of truth and then he wraps it up in bullshit and puts a bow on it and people eat it up because, you know, it's secret knowledge. And I think archaeology as a field is, is really failing right now in countering that uh, because we don't do a lot of community outreach. And we had the SAAs here just a few weeks ago, and there was a very important panel on defending Chaco Canyon. And Deb Holland was there for this panel. And people were losing their minds. They saw her walking through the convention center. They were pumped to go hear what she had to say about defending Chaco Canyon and hear from Native archaeologists about why defending Chaco is important. And I think we missed a huge opportunity because right next to the convention center is Civic Plaza, this giant open air space with a stage and a sound system. We should have held that talk there and invited everybody to come hear that talk, not just archaeologists who she's literally preaching to the choir about why it's important to defend Chaco. We should have opened that talk up to everyone and made a big media event out of it and really promote the fact that Deb Holland's going to be there and open it up to the public so that the public can understand and make, make the public your representatives when, when they're out there talking to people, you know, well, this is why it's important instead of just a small group of people. Yeah. Going through your website, the Mashika.org, there's a lot of videos that are, you know, you're talking about, you like the myth busting and stuff. Why do you think it is people are so against seeing pseudoscience talking about how savage or, you know, like Slippery Earth is the only one of your books that I've read. You talk a lot about people trying to put Christianity onto the conquistadors, when they came, they had two ways of thinking about things as the Greek pagans or as the Christians. And they tried to put both of those on the uh, mm-hmm. Mexica people. Why is it that people are against that, but then will not challenge the, um, the pseudo-archaeology, as you were saying, of things like Atlantis? Like, I think it's because they're emotionally invested in the bullshit stories mm-hmm. uh, that make them feel good. And they're learning them from people that they respect a lot and that they don't want to question. And it feels weird. Not People are always like, well, who are you to challenge these elders? And I'm like, elder? What do you mean? Do you mean elderly? Because people get old too. You know, I'm going to be one of them. You know, not everybody over a certain age is like the holder of some sacred hidden knowledge. But they yeah. learn these things from people that they consider elders. You know, it makes them feel good about themselves. And especially with something like Hunaku, you know, they literally, you know, a lot of people literally have it tattooed on their bodies. Yeah. And so for you to tell them like, hey, that's not what you think it is, they get real, you know, the response is almost always emotional. It's not intellectual. It's just this knee-jerk reaction. What do you mean? You know, especially when we started challenging the calendar system that a lot of Chicanos use, we got pushback on that because a lot of these guys have named their kids after this calendar or they've taken their name from it. They've gotten tattoos on their bodies. You know, they, they see our challenging of this calendar as a challenge to them and their identity. I think that's why they're so um, quick to react with hostility rather than being like, okay, well, let me hear this out. You know, maybe I was wrong. Right. Like we, we, everybody has a hard time with that. But yeah, I, I think that's the main basis of, of people reacting the way they do. That's why 
when I, I point out the origins of the word Latin America and Latino, it kind of surprised me that more people weren't like, holy shit, I didn't know that, you know, let's, yeah, yeah, of course, let's do away with that word. It has no value to us. Yeah. Uh, instead, they, they just double down and they attack me for being a man or they attack me for being a Chicano or they attack me for being a colonizer uh, or they attack me for being old, right? I'm 44. <laughs> You're a Chicanosaurus, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> these kids think that I'm old. They're, they're going to hate. They're not ready for life right now. That's true. That's true, they're brother. Gonna be 50. Like, I'm not old. <laughs> what are you talking yeah. about? But you were talking a little bit about the, the calendar. And uh, I know that on your website that you guys have done a lot of work with this. And through our conversations, you know, really impressive amount of work that you and your crew have done in sort of rethinking how the calendar uh, works. And I was wondering if you could uh, just talk a little bit about that and then talk a little bit about your website so that people can uh, go check it out and, you know, see uh, some of the things that you guys have on there. Some of the really good material that you have on there. So the calendar research, uh, the majority of was uh, done by my friend uh, Ruben Ochoa, uh, who lives in Compton. Like, really smart, well-educated dude, mathematician. And so when we were on Facebook, uh, my friends and I challenging these ideas, the topic of the calendar came up. Most Chicanos and Danzantes use this calendar system made by this guy named Arturo Mesa Gutierrez. You know, he's an elder... You know, he's very charismatic. He's a nice guy. I'm not going to say that he's, you know, he's not a nice, he's not a, a, a mean guy. He's very cool to be around, very charismatic. So I could see why people would, would glom onto him and believe the stuff that he teaches. When I lived in Mexico City, I bought books that were written by him. And that's where I initially learned about the calendar. So initially, I was very much a proponent of the calendar system that he created. But I'm, I'm like a curious cat. Right. So I, uh, I'm like, well, I don't want to just know what today is. I want to know why today is what it is. I, I want to know the mathematics and, and the astronomy behind this. Cause I want to understand the calendar. Some people are just happy with, Oh, you were born on the day set Tekpat, you know, they get happy and they get a tattoo of set Tekpat on their arm, but they have no real interest in understanding why they have that name or why the calendar works the way it does. So I started digging into it and I started having some questions that I couldn't answer. And at the time, you know, I was like, well, you know, Arturo Mesa, he, he's, he's probably done all this research. I just can't understand it. You know? And, uh, but there's some holes here that I don't quite get. And we started bringing these holes up on, on, uh, the Mexica history, uh, Facebook group. And it started these heated debates, these arguments going back and forth and back and forth. And it really helped me refine my position because I was able to see, you know, the holes in their arguments and be like, I hadn't even thought of that, but now I really know that this calendar is wrong. Right. So at that point, Ruben Ochoa, who doesn't really ever communicate with people on Facebook, he just, he's a cool cat. He just, you know, sticks to himself, does his thing. Uh, teaches math and he reached out to me and was like hey so uh, we should talk on the phone here's my phone number and so I called him up and he just kind of like in a two-hour long phone conversation explained it perfectly like I came away from it obsessing about the calendar now and that night I was just pouring over the uh, the Codex Borgia which has the calendar system in it. And I started having dreams in codices. Like my dreams were, you know, iconography from, from the codices. And I became very uh, singularly obsessed with understanding how the calendar worked at that point. And so we just carried a lot of research and we found out that there were writers, uh, Celia Mental, one of them, uh, one of the most famous Mexican archaeologists ever. She had written a book about a hundred years ago called the Mexican calendar system notes on the Mexican calendar system. 
and we were going through it and it was like, holy shit, she's saying a lot of the things that we're saying, you know, not exactly. We differed on a few things, but she was saying a lot of the same things that we were saying about the calendar system. And so, you know, just dig deeper and deeper. And, you know, Ruben Ochoa had already amassed this giant library research that, that he had put together over the course of a couple of years. I just really came to a, you know, not as good an understanding as he has, but good enough to where we started manufacturing calendars that you could hang on your wall that would tell you what the day is. And for those who want to know more, we have a, a website, Mexica New Year. It's Mexica with the K. If you go to our website, we're slowly, because we're busy guys, uploading lessons on how to understand the function of the calendar. We'll be done with those one day. But in the meantime, we give workshops. And the thing I like about Ruben is when people start asking questions about the calendar and I relate the questions to him, he's always like, well, where do they live? I'm like, well, this guy lives in East LA. He's like, well, tell him to come down to Compton and, you know, buy me lunch and I'll explain everything to him. So he's, he, he doesn't go out and try to present himself as like an elder or a holder of some sacred mystical knowledge. He's just like, look, here's the math and the math don't lie. Right. Here's how the math relates to the astronomy and the archaeology and the ethnography, the ethnographic histories. You know, the writings of the cronistas, all of things coalesce. And this calendar works within all of them. So we're, we're very uh, secure in, in our knowledge that our, our calendar is, is accurate. And in the knowledge that Arturo Mesas is not. <laughs> so, like, you don't even have to adopt our calendar system or buy our calendar or go by what we're saying. Just stop using his <laughs> If, if you're already using it, just stop and you'll, you'll be better off. That goes back to the debunker. Yeah. You talked about this throughout the whole thing, but if you wanted to, maybe if you want to give us some last thoughts about why it's important for Chicanos to claim their indigeneity, I think that that would be uh, really cool. I know you have a lot to say about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's, interesting what i find interesting is that this current attack on chicano identity and chicano it's it's funny because they're attacking chicano just as an overall identity and they're specifically attacking chicanos who identify as indigenous mm -hmm. as an identity yeah and that a lot of this is coming from non-chicanos or mexicans you know a lot of it's coming from south american central americans uh some mexicans but not Chicanos, you know, it's, it's like these outside forces are trying to determine our identity and attacking our identity. And it's also college age uh, people. Most of these people are, are in the university right now that are doing it. The thing that, that I find really interesting right now is you had joked about it earlier that Chicanos are seen as colonizers, right? Yeah. That somehow that's like this new narrative that's emerged. And that Chicano identity, especially as it relates to Aztlan, is um, anti-indigenous or an attack or a threat to indigenous sovereignty. And even as far back as in We Will Rise, I had raised that issue. Like, hey, we should, you know, I understand Aztlan and its place and time and its history and how important it was to Chicano identity. But, you know, we should probably stop calling it the southwestern United States, Aztlan, yeah. because this is the home to many indigenous nations and we're right. being disrespectful to them. So I was, these arguments were being made already internally, you know, amongst Chicanos without outside forces. So to view Chicano identity as being an attack on indigenous sovereignty, I think is misguided and misplaced, but I really find it interesting that you have this whole school of Afrocentric schools, uh, pseudo, pseudo scholarship, where they are openly attacking indigenous sovereignty and nobody's saying shit about it. I, I don't know, it's because people don't want to be framed as anti-black or, you know, where the, the hesitance to, to challenge these ideas is coming from, but these Afrocentric pseudo scholars are openly attacking indigenous sovereignty. You, you know, 
go online to any number of, of Facebook groups and you see these guys just trashing not only Chicanos as natives, but all natives. And they're saying that all natives who live in the United States or in the Western Hemisphere are fake and that they, they call us $5 Indians to show that we paid to get a certificate to be put on, you know, the Dawes rolls or something. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that we're fake native people and that black people are the original native American people. And there's this whole school of thought that's emerging around this. If you saw the, um, the events at the, uh, the mall, the national mall where that native man was surrounded by the MAGA hat kids, yep. You know, the guys that kicked that off were black Hebrew Israelites right? who were there to challenge the Native American march that was happening that yep. same day and telling yeah. the natives, you know, you guys are the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Issachar, and God punished you. Mm -hmm. He took away your land. And yeah. so these guys were there just talking shit, and they're really vile people. The same group, and not those guys, you know, specifically, but black Hebrew Israelites were just, they just had a table at the Gathering of Nations in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, just here in town. And they were handing out the same horseshit. Like, how was that allowed to happen? Um, then you had this case at the University of New Mexico where the Veracruz program, they were taking kids to Veracruz to Afro-Mexicano communities, which is legitimate, it's important. Part of their promotional materials, it said the African presence in Mexico, and it had a giant Olmec head, you know, right in the middle of, of the flyer. And this is at the University of New Mexico. Then you've got like hip hop guys. Uh, and it's sad, it sucks because I was really into hip hop when I was young. And as I started becoming like a skeptic and a debunker, I got turned off to hip hop because like 80% of it is informed by just this Afrocentric pseudo-historical bullshit and you know there's they rap about Ivan Van Sertima and you know the Olmecs being black and you got guys like Karis One getting up on stage and saying you know black people built the pyramids in in Mexico and you know they're they're organizing themselves to you know they're selling tribal IDs to each other to these made-up tribes that they've established and they are directly attacking indigenous sovereignty, openly mm -hmm. attacking indigenous sovereignty and nobody's saying shit. Yeah. We've, I've actually started a website called hijacking history to address this issue. And uh, immediately uh, I got a phone call from UNM. There was like a meeting going on and my friend is a professor there. No, he didn't give me, he, he messaged me in the middle of this meeting. He was like, Hey bro, they're talking about you in this meeting because I was raising, you know, concerns over the Veracruz program at UNM and I had started this website and a petition to get them to stop doing it. And it was being run through the Chicano studies program, which blows my mind. But he messages me and he's like, Hey bro, they're, they're talking about you in this meeting. They're trying to figure out the best way, you know, they want to figure out how to paint you as being anti-black. So instead of addressing the concerns that I raised, you know, why is UNM Chicano Studies promoting this idea that the Olmecs were black Africans and, you know, totally shitting on the history of the indigenous people from Veracruz? Instead of addressing that, they wanted to know how they could attack me. Yeah. And I think that is a sad example of, I call them wokelings, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's, it's this call-out culture to where there's no nuance there's no give and take. There's no exchange of ideas. It's we we're right. You were wrong. Shut the fuck up. If you disagree with us, you're the enemy. We must destroy you. You know, that one young woman that was really behind the whole attack on Chicano indigenous identity. I, I can't remember her name. But she's a professor. She tweeted, you know, her explicit goal. She, she tweeted it out. You know, we must destroy the legacy of the Chicano movement. And that was like her stated goal. And so there's no reasoning with people who are already coming from that position, you know, or maybe there is, maybe I'm just not good at it. I don't know. That doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. Right. That, yeah. That's a pretty, 
that's a pretty definitive statement. This essay where she, you know, she talks about teaching an intro to Chicano studies class. Yeah. And then attacking her students yeah. <laughs> for identifying as indigenous. Yeah. So yeah, there's no wiggle room there. There's no room for, um, well, let's sit down and have a conversation about this. And it's really, you know, concerning because I think it's very authoritarian. And I, I've started calling these guys uh, the alt-brown because they're, they're just like the brown version of the alt-right. They're, they're very stuck in their bizarre, authoritarian, fascistic uh, ideology. And you know, they, you know, there's no room for outside uh, perspectives, especially if you're an older male Chicano colonizer, you know, whatever. The alt-brown. Yeah, that's a good one. That is. Yeah, and they're coming for us. They're they're living. You know, they said it. Their goal is to destroy the legacy of the Chicano movement. Yeah, which is fucked up for a number of reasons. But what I think is hip, really hypocritical is is this whole attack on you know the name Mecha, changing the name of Mecha. These these guys, the wokelings. You know, they always talk about, well, we need space. We need our own spaces, places where we can be ourselves, safe places where we don't have to worry about being shit on by other people. Yeah. And for many, Mecha was that space. You know, for many Chicanos and Chicanas, that was Mecha. It was where you could just go be a Chicano, hang out with your homies, yep. you know, barbecue, you know, talk some shit and, and just hang out and, and be free to be who you were. Yeah. So they, they're very much for people having spaces, but then I, I raised the question, you know, well, what about Chicanos? Don't we deserve our own spaces? And they're like, no, fuck you. You, you don't because you're, uh, you know, sexist, transphobic. They, they, they throw all these, these terms out, uh, these blanket statements. And I don't know if, you know, who they had a bad experience with, you know, some asshole machista who was transphobic and, and homophobic and, you know, it was just an asshole, yeah. you know, but you don't paint the, the entire pe group of people based on the behaviors of, of one. And, and you think they would know that, right? Yeah. You would think that they would have the self-awareness to see, oh, we're behaving exactly like these assholes that we claim to, to despise. Yep. You know? we're, we're the new version of them. Yeah. And it's this, um, you know, it, it's, it's funny because one group, I had written this column a while back called Latinx No Thanks. Yep. And when it came out, it was like my most popular blog that I've ever written. Yeah. Like getting tens of thousands of hits a day. Yeah. I read it. Oh, it was good. So did I. Yeah. This one group, you know, started attacking me on their Facebook group. Uh, and so I only knew this because somebody had sent me a screenshot. So I just kind of went in there and, and read what they were saying about me. What I thought was funny is, you know, they're, they're shitting on me. They're like, yeah, fuck this curly guy. Who the hell is he? Blah, 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 blah. He don't know shit. Oh, he's old. Uh, he's a man. And then further down, somebody posted something like, yeah, screw that dude. But her, her uh, profile pic was like Beyonce. And the immediate response, the next response, it shifted away from me entirely. And they were like, you know, what's up with the digital blackface? Why are you presenting yourself as a black person in the digital realm? And I was like, holy shit, what? they're going to eat each other. They're yeah. just going to eat each other immediately. And then the next response was, well, how do you know she isn't black? And then it just devolved into this insane argument about digital blackface and hundreds of, of posts just attacking each other. And that's what I mean by they demand ideological purity where it's you agree with me 100% on this. Otherwise you are the enemy. Yeah. And they're coming from this space, which is very dangerous. You know, I don't know if you watch, uh, there's a TV show called man in the high castle. Oh, love it. Yeah. Well, have you seen the season three where the Nazis rewrite American history? Oh yeah. They, they destroy all the symbols of American history. They burn down the Liberty, they melt the Liberty bell and make yep. a swastika out of it. Yep. And they started over, they call it year zero. Yep. And goddamn through that whole episode, I was like, this is Latinx. 
Yeah. You guys are the Latinxers, like coming after Chicano history, coming yep. after the history of the Chicano movement. Yeah. A perfect example was they were arguing about the word Chicano movement being male centric or, you know, yeah, I think that's, that's what it was. It was that it was a gendered word. And my response was, well, how about we just call it El Movimiento? Because I know what that means. I grew up in it and it's not gendered. So, and they were just like, fuck you. They, they didn't even want to listen to my argument at all. They were just waiting for me to say something so they could be like, what the fuck do you know? You know? <laughs> You're just old. You're old, right? <laughs> I'm, old. I'm old enough that one of my first memories is my uncle using my socks to make Molotov cocktails to blow up a cop car. Yes, I am old. There you go. And, yeah. you know, I didn't, my parents and my, you know, my uncles and my aunts that were in the heat of the Chicano movement, right? Because I was born in 74, but they were like in the middle of it. And like, they didn't get the privilege of, of receiving microaggressions. They just got aggression. Aggression, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Physical cop beating your ass, yeah. you know, assassination attempt, aggression. And I don't think these, uh, when you're not teaching Chicano history correctly, you, you lose all of that understanding that maybe they would understand why we called it Aztlan if, if they bothered to, to learn the history and talk to the people who were from there. Yeah. But there's this attitude of, you know, no, we know everything that there is to know. And uh, it's funny because I sound like my mom. Right, because my mom always used to tell me, like, I think you know everything. <laughs> I do, mom. <laughs> but now, you know, it's like, oh man, I didn't know shit. Hopefully, these guys have that moment of awakening sooner rather than later, because they're leading themselves uh, down a very dangerous path. In my opinion, I could just be full of shit. You know? Yeah, it's the risk that we all run that we're just full of shit. Well, yeah. It's a lot easier to realize that when you're old than when you're young. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, for some people, you still have old dummies. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to say something really quick about that image you posted of the codices of the Avengers. Yeah. And somebody had posted a criticism of it. But to me, I think it's really cool because that's how you make it relevant and interesting to young people because, you know, I was in Oaxaca recently and talking to people who were trying to revitalize and preserve their cultures, their weaving traditions. The whole trip was about, you know, traditional weaving in, in Oaxaca, going to a lot of Mixteco villages and just speaking to really cool people. And I would talk to them about the traditions and are there young people interested in maintaining these traditions? And for the most part, they're like, no, because it's, we don't make a lot of money doing it because it's not seen as something that's valued. Right. And it's not seen as something that's cool. Right. You want to do the cool stuff and you want to make money. Well, one way to get, you know, these kids to understand like, yeah, our traditions are cool, man. Look at this. This, the Avengers is a, you know, maybe that'll inspire them to be like, well, what do these symbols mean? You know, right. why are they drawn this way? And then take it upon themselves to, to learn or, or want to keep that stuff alive. At this point, I think that any way of making young people interested in preserving their culture and being proud of who they are, of learning an indigenous language, I think whatever it takes at this point, and if it means drawing a poster of, you know, Quetzalcoatl as Captain America or, or whatever, you know, because, right. you know, it's, it's 2019, you know, we live in a modern world and you got to take advantage of, you know, the pop culture as it is, you know, I'm very involved here in Albuquerque with uh, the indigenous Comic-Con. And that's like kind of the whole idea behind that is, you know, no, indigenous culture is cool and we can be modern and be indigenous yeah, and take things from modern society and make them relevant to young people and have them understand like you can be indigenous and be a nerd, you know, like we call ourselves indigenous. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a bad thing. Indigenous. I like that. Yeah, I'm down with that, Indigenerds. All right, okay, we should probably wrap up. All right, so we want to thank everybody for listening, especially want to thank Curly for taking some time out of his day 
to uh, come in and uh, drop some knowledge about the work that he's doing and the stuff that he's done over the, the past uh, couple of decades. Uh, and Curly said a lot of different websites he's involved with. I don't know how many domain names that this guy has, but uh, <laughs> we'll we'll uh, we'll put a uh, a number of them into the uh, show notes. But just real quick, the you know Mashika.org is the big one that I follow from him, and then the Mashika New Year I thought had some really cool things that I've been looking at recently. But uh, we'll get we'll get some more of those ones up on there. Want to say goodbye, Curly? Uh, yeah, just thanks for listening. Thanks for having me on. And I hope uh, it's been productive. All right. I enjoyed it. Yeah. My name is Ernesto Morales. And I'm Alex Janish. And we are yeah. the, Re- the Reality Dysfunction. We should just leave it like that one. That was, that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to fade a cheap down.